Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Derek Smith, the CTO at Zoom Info, and we discuss where the line is drawn between AI, algorithms, and queries, the right and wrong ways to give feedback, and how to prioritize the product roadmap to drive innovation. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hey, Joel, how's it going? Amazing. Let me just get the audio through my AirPods here. Boom. All right. Can you hear me all right? Yes, loud and clear. Nice. Dude, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Zoom Info. Of me or Zoom Info? Not you. No, okay, not good. You. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll decide at the end of the, at the, end of the conversation. <laughs> no, but like we switched to Zoom Info, I think, three months ago. And we were going through this whole thing of like, you know, who do we have on? I was like, well, let's go look at some of the products that we like and go talk to those people. And Zoom Info, it really helped our sales team with the, the data. And we just re-engineered our sales process. And then you, uh, your data was a part of that. And it's been working out really well since. So uh, we had an e efficiency improvement through being able to do automation, less manual collection, time spent which just means, you know, more outreach, more dollars, more salespeople, and then you can grow the company and then apply that culture and have a great life. Yeah. I mean, we exist because sales can be a really inefficient process and what's, what kind of salesperson wants to spend their time researching data or guessing emails? You know, that's just not an efficient way to use someone's time. Who's really skilled at selling, you know, I mean, that's, that's a entry level job and they're spending a lot of their time doing that. And, at Zoom Info, we just give that data to, to people to make them more efficient and more successful. How did you meet these people? Like, how did you meet the people at Zoom Info and, and get to that position? Oh, this is a good story. Um, but I uh, I was in law school, and the guy seated next the guy seated next to me um, was starting a company and wanted some help. Uh, Henry Shuck, the CEO, uh, decided to start a data company, software company, uh, in the middle of law school, and. So I helped him out with some crawling and, you know, menial data work. And uh, I actually, I had a, I have a huge passion in sports. So I left the company in 2009 and started, and the, the company at the time was called Discover Work. Um, mm -hmm. And there's been lots of mergers and acquisitions that have created. I think we'll talk about it later because it's interesting from a leadership perspective. But I went to work in sports and I kept my eye on what Henry was doing in Vancouver, Washington. And the company kept growing and growing and growing. And in 2016, uh, he basically said, you know, it's now or never if you want to come back because because we're we're going to we're taking off and, and I don't have time to keep asking you to come work for me. So uh, I, I was tired of New York City. I went out there and it's just been it's been a whirlwind ever since, you know, just growing. And, you know, now now I'm on the leadership team and working on, you know, one of the fastest growing software companies out there. So that's how I met up with all of those all those people. That's amazing. Did you play sports when you were younger? I played baseball. Um, baseball is my passion. I actually worked for Major League Baseball for for six years in New York, and uh, but I, I realized at about age eighteen, I was not going to be a Major League Baseball player. And if you can't play Major League Baseball, well, why don't you try to work in Major League Baseball, right? At least you you get a taste of it. And and I feel very lucky to have fulfilled basically a version of my childhood dream of of being in Major League Baseball. 
right? That sounds so cool. What did you do there? Like, did you get to work on like what type of technology? What are you doing at like, what does technology people do at MLB? So I was doing investigations. So uh, if you think about steroid investigations or fraud investigations, there is a lot of data wrangling that goes into uh, cross-referencing, you know, player, like we, uh, let's, let's say a player tests positive for steroids. Well, he's not going to tell you where he got the steroids from, but we want to find out where he got the steroids from, right? Because maybe other players are getting them. And so you have to look at who the player uh, leaves tickets for, who they trained with in the off season, uh, where they used to live, who do they live with in spring training. And, and all this data is in different places and you have to bring it together to try to find out like who else is doing steroids and, and who's the doctor. And that was a big part of my job. And, and, you know, ultimately at major league baseball, I was finding information in, in different ways. And it's sometimes contact information for Dominican prospects. So there's this problem in the Dominican Republic where people will lie about their age, right? Because documentation isn't great. And so someone tries out when they're 14 years old and they're not very good. They come back four years later and they still say they're 14 years old and they look big and strong and they're amazing. And, you know, unless you have systems to capture biometric information or to document, you know, what they look like or where they were born, you're going to get defrauded. And, and baseball teams are going to spend millions of dollars investing in this player that they think has lots of room for growth that actually doesn't. So that's, that's amazing. So I worked on this project like 10 years ago and these uh, guys would come in like around lunchtime and it was like a side project of the, the organization I was working with. And they were like building and buying teams down like where you, you were, you mentioned, and they were, they gave that exact thing. They're saying, Oh, you should, they were showing pictures of these like 14 year olds that look like they were like 25. And I was like, there's no way. And it's so competitive. Apparently, I don't understand the business model too much. I just know you can like start a team and somehow that becomes profitable. Uh, Cause I didn't get into it. I was just like, Oh, here comes, you know, the, the group of guys that has the baseball team down in the, that other country. And they, it was just uh, unbelievable, but that is exactly how it works. And that's so true. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that I worked in a major league baseball that I think is fascinating from a management standpoint is salary arbitration. So most people aren't familiar with how this works, but there are a set of players in Major League Baseball that at the end of the year, they have to negotiate their salary with their employer, the team. And if they can't reach an agreement, they each submit which number they think is appropriate to a panel. And they argue for their numbers to the panel and the panel has to pick one of the numbers. They can't pick a number in between. And even more complicating the process, the panel doesn't know anything about baseball. And so you have players saying, I should be paid a lot of money. You know, I, I'm as good as these other guys who they're probably not as good as. And then you have the team management saying, you're not that good. You made all these mistakes last year. We think you should only make this much money. And then the arbitrators pick one of the numbers. And then you have to go back to work with the other party the next day. So, you know, it's a system designed to encourage settlement between employers and employees, you know. Who wants to go through that process? No one. Okay, let's meet in the middle. But sometimes you don't meet in the middle and you have these court hearings where baseball players are basically arguing with their teams about how good they are. And that's a very data-driven exercise where you're trying to project how much should I pay this guy based on his statistics? You know, uh, how much can we afford to pay? Who is he similar to? Who are the most similar players? And, uh, you know, it's the fusion of like 
statistical analysis, the law and sports. And that's like basically my entire background rolled into, you know, one two hour hearing. That's amazing. What was the culture like? You know, I would imagine it was pretty competitive, but did that, did that carry over from the sports world, like into the MLB organization? Was it a competitive work culture? Um, you know, I worked for the league office, so we were kind of like a shared services organization. So, so we were like the, the, you know, the, the, I don't like the word police, but we were the overarching entity, you know, organizing baseball. Police. But, yeah. but, <laughs> well, sometimes like when you're doing investigations and steroids, you feel like the police, right? You know, you're, right. um, but I would say that the, the competition between teams is so intense, right? You are like, you know, Moneyball, right? Moneyball is really famous way that, that, Billy Bean and the Oakland A's use statistics to get an edge and like everything's an edge now training, nutrition, travel, like, you know, you're trying to just turn the screw a half screw tighter to get that edge on the competition and to find that inefficiency that no one else has found. And so, I mean, one of the problems is when you have that competitive of an environment, people do break the rules, you know, like, Oh, you're not supposed to steal other people's coaches. Well, who's to say you don't send a text message to, to the guy, you know, and tell him how much you want to pay him, even though it's a, it's tampering. And then how do you prove that they tampered? So it's really hard to enforce rules when the stakes are so high. Yeah. It sounds like they have a bunch of small, small rules. Like I didn't, I don't know about any of those where you can't steal your coach. It's like, that's not free market. Like (laughs) if I want to pay someone to do something, it's their decision. Right. Yeah. Well, if he's under contract, you know, there's, there's long-term contracts in sports and, and the benefit for the coach is if you get fired, you still get paid for the next four years, multi-million dollars. So oh. um, yeah, it's, you know, sports and business, uh, very different, but I was very lucky to find some common threads that have really helped me in my role today. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds unbelievable. I, I was reading your article about AI and that made me like, like a fan, uh, you had an incredible amount of like unique thoughts about it, but can you give me like an overview of what GPT-3 is? Sure. So GPT-3 is, uh, basically, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's, it's a language, uh, service that can basically replicate or tries to replicate human responses, right. And, and the way that humans use language and, and it also has this entirely massive, uh, data set behind it of like everything that it's crawled on the internet. So it knows how certain things are worded, how certain responses are given. So you can do things like say, like, you know, tell me a story about baseball written in the tone of Emily Dickinson, and it will do something like that, you know, and, and it will attempt to answer any question possible. Uh, So you can say, you know, who's the president of the United States? And it'll say Donald Trump. You can say, you know, who's the host of the modern CTO podcast? And it'll say Joel Beasley. Um, that's and, right. Amazon Alexa will tell you that too. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. I was, or I said, uh, who is Joel Beasley the other day and she like spit it back and I was like, Whoa, that's pretty cool. I think, uh, I I'm not high profile enough to get that. And the Smith last name makes it pretty unlikely that I, uh, I know you've got know. Derek Smith. That's like, Oh, you got to try even harder now. That's what you have to do. It's good when people try to Google me though. If I want to be hidden, you know, I'm, I'm harder to find. That is true. Until those AIs, until that GPT-3 gets all over you and yeah. <laughs> hunts you down. And, you know, GPT-3, people are, people are lauding it as like, you know, the, 
like this is the human, this is the takeover, right? AI is taking over for humans. And there's articles in favor of how amazing it's going to be. There's other more critical opinions of it, but it really does make it very easy for someone to leverage machine learning, natural language processing, and really intelligent types of computation that, that wasn't available before. Yeah, I've read this um, column on like The Guardian, and it was entirely written by GPT-3. Have you seen that? No. Okay, so it, they, they said that it was written by GPT-3, and the purpose of the article, like the, the motivation they gave it, was to, convince, to write an article and convince humans not to be afraid of AI. Right. And then they said that they, that they took some editing. But as I read it, I was like, there's no way, like the way that it was written, I was like, there's no way that GPT-3 did this. So we start, my production team and I, we start digging deeper. Okay. So apparently they produced a series of articles and then they cut out the text that makes the most sense from all. And I said, that's like me following my three-year-old around with a camera for six months and then stitching together some like insightful clips to make her sound like a savant, even though she's just like, you just edited it. Like that doesn't count. It has to be one article and it has to be fluid. Yeah, I, I would, I, you know, in my personal opinion is it does some really cool things, but it doesn't do anything well enough to be like relied upon all the time. And that's pretty much what we need in technology and in, in business is something that's reliable, right? And if you ask it how many eyes a spider has, it'll tell you eight. And, and that's just, that's because the, you know, eight legs and spiders and eight the arms, you know, like it's, it's, it's always going to have these things that it gets wrong. And, and that's why I think that, you know, the, the fusion of human intelligence and machine learning and intelligence is really where where you can make the the most impact in business. I, I don't think there's obviously all manual work isn't isn't going to work these days. But also, uh, we're at least we're very far, I think, from relying fully on on something like GPT three. Yeah, I mean, well, and I'm excited about Neuralink too. But when I see those, what gets me excited is watching the rate of progress between the years. I think it was like 175 billion points. I had like more than doubled from the previous year or two years. But I, I just like fast forward it in my head 10 years, right? At least there's, it's something's happening, people are doing it, and it's useful. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really get scared about the, the AI stuff. It doesn't really scare me at all. Because um, worst case scenario, we can just turn off all the computers, right? Yeah. Once they have bodies, that becomes like a little bit more difficult, right? Like once we have more like humanoid shells, like if there was an autonomous factory generating these like autonomous shells that were all like connected, then you get issues because the machines could actually force you to physically do stuff. But we're not there yet, right? Yeah. So that's, we're not, I think Will Smith made a movie about that. <laughs> I think there's a lot of movies about that. Be like Roomba would be the one to blame. Right. <laughs> if you want to see like the, the seeds of this right now, go check out a Roomba. Okay. So as an engineer, I, I want to like, I want to, um, to ask an interesting question. Where do you draw the line? Or I guess let's, let's make it more of a, a discussion. We were, I was trying to figure out where do you draw the line between like AI queries, algorithms. And I was wondering, have you come across like a nice infographic or some like nice consolidated explanation of the differences between these things because it's just so ambiguous ai it's very ambiguous i uh, i we did an internal podcast for our whole sales team 
you know, because we we sell a product that's heavily based in AI and they're talking to prospects every day about what we're doing in AI, but they don't even know what AI is, right? Or they don't know how to explain it. And so I think there's, I, I have kind of, I found, I found like a Venn diagram that kind of said like, this is AI, inside it is machine learning and natural language processing and deep learning, you know, and then data science kind of like overlaps part of the AI circle, but there's other parts of data science that aren't in AI, you know, like EDA or, you know, who knows what else. And so, so AI is data science, but there's other data science that's outside of, and like algorithms, you know, that are probably outside of AI. And then there's stuff within AI. But I do think the definition on a macro level of AI, it kind of changes over time. At least this is my, you know, when I think about artificial intelligence, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a process or a machine that's doing things that require human thought or human, you know, human uh, like decision making. And before there were calculators or, or abacuses, like, you know, humans had to count in their head. And then we built machines to do that. So maybe like, you know, a thousand years ago, an abacus was artificial intelligence, you know, or, or a calculator is. And so I think as, as machines get more, sophisticated the things that humans do change over time right and and as what humans do over time now the the goalposts are moving and now you need machines to do what humans are doing today and then in 20 years the goal is going to be to have machines doing what humans are doing in 20 years and so i i think artificial intelligence is almost just like on this journey where it, it's it's lagging behind uh the tools it makes uh and and I view it just as 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 human-like decision making and computational abilities, and you know, broadly applying those principles to to what we do. Have you written an article on that? No. It's a really good thought. Like when you were explaining it, it was it was unique for me. I'd never heard it explained like that with the abacus, and we're always trailing. And it it is really interesting, and it's also interesting how you know. I read in your your other article, the companies, the startups that had AI were getting like fifty percent more funding, and it's it's interesting because it's it's like these buzzwords. It's it's like as a collection, if we look at ourselves as like one organism, it's like we want these things to sort of exist, and so the money part of our organism just throws money at these certain at these buzzwords. It's like as much as people knock on buzzwords, their importance is like critical. Like it's just absolutely required. It's the only way we can communicate like cross industries and uh, get new products to market quickly is like, you know, I used to look down on, on the fact that a new technology or like, or something would come out and then the board would tell the company, Oh, we need to implement this type of, you know, we need AI, we need AI in our company, you know? And it's like, well, it's because that's the future and you need to be thinking about the future. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I think what's I think there are people jumping on the AI bandwagon though, you know, and they're uh, I think it's also become a marketing device, uh, right? Like oh, like I'm I'm looking at buying this golf club, and it was designed with AI, and like I don't know what that means, you know, like I mean you can like they're like you just put AI next to a product, and all of a sudden people think it's fancier and it's smarter, and uh, like I think in my article I, I pointed out that like if you have .ai as your domain you get three and a half times as much funding. 
Now, is that because you have the domain or is it because you're just doing something that's the future? You know, we can argue about that. But there was a study that said 40% of companies that claim to use AI aren't actually really using AI. But there's no AI police, right? There's no one going around saying, like, prove to me you're using machine learning. Uh, no, and- I, I'm, that's my new job. <laughs> AI police. It'd be kind of fun. It could be a, it could be a TV show that I'd like to watch that I only mo- most people would, but it's like I investigate if you're actually legitimately using artificial intelligence um, because you get away with it. You know, no one's going to say, "Show me the proof that you're using AI." It just, you know, it. No one gets to that level. The the, the proof is in whether your product is compelling, and you know, compelling products aren't really going to have a long shelf life if they aren't using these types of techniques because. That's what you need these days to to stay in the game. Yeah, you need like you string together like all the buzzwords like a quantum computing AI Neuralink interface. That's what we're building here. Yeah, and the checks just start coming in. And no one on like a sales call is gonna be like, "Wait a second, can you explain to me like what those like?" No one, you know, in in today's world, people are kind of embarrassed to like say, "Can you explain that to me?" Right? Or what exactly do you mean here? And so you just kind of like the conversation just keeps going because no one wants to get into a, a detailed discussion of what, you know, Neuralink is or neural nets are on a sales call. Yeah. What, what did you, you mentioned an acronym earlier about data. You said like EDA. I never heard that before. Oh, it's a exploratory data analysis. So, you know, if, if you want to build an algorithm or a model or predict something like you don't just, you don't just start on day one, like crunching numbers and like, trying different combinations of features, right? Like you need to understand the data, right? Like understanding, you know, like garbage in, garbage out, right? If you put dirty data into a model, you're just going to get dirty data out. So this is part of my job at ZoomInfo is building the algorithms that do things like predict the employee count, that predict the revenue for a private private company, that predict the likelihood that this person's still employed at this company. To do that really well, you need to understand what data is available to you, how it got there, how it changes over time, and the best way to use it. And, you know, that, that requires some, some research before you dig into the real data science. And it's, it's just exploratory data analysis. It's digging into, it's basically evaluating the ingredients that you have before you bake a cake, you know? So you guys are using like legit AI in the product? We are. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, DiscoverOrg, the, the, what the company used to be, was 100% manual research at a time. So we were just a CRM of data that was manually gathered by humans. And so it's kind of funny. In 2016, our platform at DiscoverOrg only had 800,000 contacts. Today, we have 120 million. And so that just shows you. And in, in 2016, we were the leader. You know, we are the leader. So in the past four years, the cloud and big data has just totally you know flip the script on on what you need to do to keep up in in a data focused sales environment but what we have the ability ability to do now at zoom info is we're not having the researchers call up and say hey what's joel's phone number you know that when you have 50 70 million phone numbers one more doesn't really move the needle but if you have those 150 researchers augment your algorithms find out the inefficiencies you know give that ground truth feedback back to the data scientists to improve the algorithm, all of a sudden you're optimizing algorithms like no other, no one else can because none of our competitors have a research team of 150 people augmenting uh, you know, AI algorithms. So 
Well, you built your business model like to include that, right? From the get-go, and it's going to be hard for anyone who has a different business model to provide that same competitive advantage with their current cost structures, right? A hundred percent. And, you know, business data is hard to keep up on. So, you know, like we're not, you know, we're a software company that, that we're also can say we're a data company, but like, you know, selling personal data, it's pretty static. I have the same cell phone number I had 20 years ago. I have the same personal email I'll probably have for the rest of my life. Like that data, when people sell it, it's still good. But business data changes all the time. I mean, I've had three different employers. I've had uh, three different emails at this company. I've had seven different direct dial phone numbers in my three different employers. And that data changes all the time for people, uh, for companies. You know, there's mergers and acquisitions, companies grow, companies change technologies. Uh, BB&T acquired SunTrust last year or earlier this year. Their company size went from 15,000 to 35,000. They moved headquarters. They have a new CEO. And someone needs to keep track of all this to help people know who to sell to, you know, to prioritize their accounts. And that's what we do. We try to keep, keep our arms around everything that's happening in the business world so that sales and marketing teams can, can effectively find the companies that, and the people that they need to sell to. Have you guys ever bought like a email marketing company or like a reply? I know I use reply.io, but you ever buy a company like that? We did. Um, so uh, we acquired a company called Tellwise two years ago, which is basically, I think we're now calling these, at least on the sales side, it's called sales engagement. And it's, it's basically, you can now pre-schedule outreach. You know, so, so I think a lot of the listeners here that are in technology, they probably get these emails, you know, asking them to, hey, are you interested? Will you take a call? Most of those emails today are like totally pre, pre-planned. You know, they're, they're obviously not, are you sure? Yeah. Oh there my isn't goodness. Someone writing three paragraphs for just for you, Joel, um, you know, it, they're recycling content and they're not clicking send, right? They are scheduling. Okay. I'm going to reach out to Joel. If he doesn't answer a week later, I want to send him another one. Uh, if he doesn't answer that, I'm going to schedule a call in cause I have his phone number from zoom info. And then, you know, on average, it takes like six to seven touches before someone actually says, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll listen to what you have to sell. I think it might help us. And, and how you optimize that outreach is, is really what you were kind of talking about earlier, is uh, how can you be efficient in going to market in selling your product? And it's really by automating a lot of the sales and marketing messages that are sent. Yeah, because I was thinking, I was like, I wonder if Zoom Info would ever like build a connection back to like reply because all this, like you, we, we take the data from you and then we go do stuff with it, but you don't get that information reported back to you. And I was like, I wonder if they're going to buy one of these companies. Cause it would, it would help it in my imagination, which is up for debate. <laughs> it, it seems like it would help to have a feedback loop on that. And if you owned a company that was also sending the messages, you would have a greater detail of feedback. Yeah, so I feed that's a great that's a great um, topic feedback loops. We actually use feedback loops a lot in keeping our data fresh. So, you know, when customers integrate their marketing automation system with Zoom Info, one of our conditions is, hey, we'll help enrich your data, but we want you to share with us when an email is delivered and when it bounces. Right? We're not going to look at the content of your email that's none of your business. We don't, we're not going to look at who you're sending to, you know, that relationship is private. 
But telling me that, you know, Derek.Smith at ZoomInfo is valid or bounced, that really helps us keep our data up to date. You know, we have an accuracy score in our platform that lets customers know the likelihood that this person's still employed. And so if I see that uh, Joel Beasley opened an email yesterday, he's probably still employed, right? So that can, we can take that and our algorithm will, will increase the confidence that Joel's still employed. If, if Joel all of a sudden starts bouncing, that's a problem. You know, something happened to Joel. Um, maybe you just rebranded, maybe, who knows? But the feedback loops are a big part of what we do at ZoomInfo. That's why you got to get like a, that's why you guys probably bought like Never Bounce, right? Yep. I I've actually, I use that tool independently of you guys. And uh-huh. then the other day I was on the tool and I saw at the bottom that you guys own them. I was like, what? That's crazy. Yeah. It's, um, you know, what happened was uh, in 2016 or 2017, like whether an email is valid or not is a great way to find out if someone still works somewhere. Right. It's, and, and I don't want to get into email deliverability too much, but you know, the spam filters are getting more complex. They're getting smarter. Gmail now has like the tabs for promotions versus inbox. And if your company's domain rep, and I'm sure a lot of like the IT guys that listen, if your company's domain reputation is bad, your life is not fun as someone in technology, right? Because your sales and marketing team, they're, they're not getting responses to their emails. You know, we had an issue like three, four years ago where our signs weren't getting into the inbox. So you couldn't even get deals signed. Um, and so sending emails to bouncing emails is a really bad thing to do as a company. It's um, like the worst thing you can do. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and, and so how do you make sure that you don't send to bouncing emails? Well, you use a tool like Never Bounce and it, uh, it, it'll catch any of the servers that, you know, actually provide a response. Yeah. Cause I, I actually dug deeper into it and it's like, there's a, there's an array of responses. So you can sort of choose, we use like Zapier and then I use filters based on the never bounce response. And I, like I tested it with a couple different accounts just to see like, you know, what filters matter the most. Uh, so there's always, it's always fun playing around and like learning with that stuff. And I say playing around, but I mean, it's, directly tied to revenue. It's like top of funnel stuff. It's how you get meetings and then how you get proposals and sales, right? Yeah. And you know, those feedback loops that we talked about, they fuel the never bounce algorithm now. So if, if I see Joel Beasley sending an email yesterday in Marketo or in one of our community, now if someone else tries to check Joel Beasley's email and never bounce, it's going to be valid because we have a lot of evidence that Joel is employed even if his, his email is one of those ones that when you ping the server, it doesn't give you a response. So um, it was a very strategic acquisition for us because we make Never Bounce better, right, with the feedback loop data, and then Never Bounce makes us better by letting us know when a lot of those emails are no longer valid. You guys just had your uh, IPO, right? You guys are on the NASDAQ now. It's big time. How, how was it going through that process? Did it affect you at all? Um, it definitely affected me. Yeah, I was, uh, so I was part of the roadshow team, you know, so, you know, we had these plans of flying on private jets from San Francisco to New York to Chicago presenting. And we were actually supposed to IPO like the third week of March. Uh, that was like the day. And then obviously COVID hit and uh, we, we had pause on that for about, for about two to three months. Uh, and we, so we did virtual, we did virtual meetings, meeting with investors, uh, lots of zoom meetings. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it, it was an amazing event. It, it was, it was a great part, uh, it was something to be a part of, 
would it have been nice to get pictures in Times Square, you know, and and celebrate with my coworkers? Yes, but ultimately we accomplished something that that uh, we had our eyes on for a long time. That was really rewarding. So, uh, you know, hopefully we'll do like a one year reunion or something if uh, New York City opens up. But, you know, it's I never when I was in law school and this guy asked me to work for his company that he's starting. Never in a million years did I expect it to have a market cap of fifteen billion dollars and be on the Nasdaq in. 2020. Oh, you guys should have rung the bell virtually. I saw them do it. I was talking with Harry, the C- uh, CIO of Zoom. They, they did it from space. They let the International Space Station <laughs> ring the bell. Yeah, I think uh, we probably missed out on that one. But, you know, we, we had a bell and Henry had a bell in his, uh, in his office. Uh, so I think he probably did his own bell ringing, personal bell ringing. <laughs> Oh, it's a good good time to celebrate. To be honest with you, when I saw you guys come up on on the market, like in my Robinhood, I I bought some of your stock because I I buy stuff for a long term, like decades, and I use the product and I know the product and I'd seen it around for years and years before we actually you know used it, and and so I was like, all right, this is a this is a company that I think will do well in the in the long run. Yeah. No. We're. I mean. I'm confident in our team here at Zoom Info and, and what we're doing. And, uh, you know, one of the problems we have, uh, and I'm guessing most leaders have this, is like prior prioritization. There's so much we could possibly do. I think everyone probably feels under-resourced. I need more people. You know, we have all these great ideas. What are we going to do to impact the business the most? And it, they're hard decisions. You know, you're, you're just making calculated bets on, on which products are going to you know, ha- provide the most value to customers, where the market's going. And uh, I like where we sit, but, you know, I'm sure Nokia liked their position 10 years ago or whatever it is, right? So so how do you do that? Like, how do you decide how to place bets? Like, what, do you have a system or a process? Do you have like a new product team that like explores and launches and tries to gain traction? Like, how do you do that as an organization? Um, yeah, so that's actually kind of close to what my job is now. So I'm the SVP of innovation and data R&D. And uh, what we struggled with at Discover and Zoom Info uh, for a long time was we were spending so much time combining our companies. So Discover.org was really the combination of two companies that were the same size. They were both about 300 people. And, um, and we both did the same thing. And so you spend all this time combining uh, two companies that do the same thing to get more revenue, right? Huge, huge, uh, huge boost in, in inorganic revenue. And then you do it again for Zoom Info, two companies of the same size, and we did the same thing very differently, right? Zoom Info is about big data crawling, get as much data as you can. Discover.org is all about accuracy, right? Highest percentage of, of you know, deliverable emails. And so you had two different philosophies, two different religions, and you had to fuse them together really fast. And, and as I'm sure as, as most people can imagine, uh, the systems you need to collect the mo- as much data as possible are very different from the systems you need to collect data as accurately as possible. And so we were just spinning wheels trying to get these two systems to work together to make our existing product as good as possible. And no one was thinking about, well, what are we going to sell a year from now? What are we going to sell two years from now? Right? Like, we can't just be this dinosaur that just, you know, has emails and phone numbers, right? We need to, we need to move forward. So I kind of gave up all the data and the research team and now I'm focused on innovation and, and the, the way I do it, at least for the projects that I'm assigned 
is it's a lot of research and it's a lot of conversations. So advertising, we don't do anything with advertising right now, but we probably should. You know, we have marketers as customers. If you want to send an email to 500 people, you probably want to place ads to them too, right? So well, why, that's why what we do. Yeah. yeah. So why can't ZoomInfo be part of that process? And so I'm meeting with consultants. I'm talking to people. I'm building up wireframes. Um, and uh, I love it because it's like I'm not really fixing problems anymore. I'm coming up with ideas. And like, would you rather come up with cool ideas or fix problems? You know, one of them is very stressful. The other one is really rewarding. <laughs> um, and and so I think I got the good end of that deal. And uh, but it, it's it's still hard, even when you know what you want to do. It's like okay, everyone agrees this is super important to do, but we have that other thing we said was super important four months ago and it's not done. And, and you just kind of, you kind of stack it up and you, you, you do your best, I guess. Yeah. It's hard not to get distracted by like the flavor of the week type deal mm -hmm. because you know, you hear things like, Oh, we get into marketing or when I was thinking of future stuff for you guys that I would be interested in, I was, I think audiences, right? So you're familiar with audiences and marketing. So mm -hmm. I think audiences and then to get would be better than that would be as if like you acquired some company and had an like first party intent data. So like not all, so I could, we, that could be like a filter, right? Like when you're searching, it's like, show me all the people that matches labels and has intent data that matches this. And now it's like, boom, I've got people that are like in a buying cycle, you know? Yeah. There's enough data out there to connect all those things. You just need a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and luckily, um, luckily we kind of have, you know, as a public company now, we have the, we have some cash to, to go acquire companies and to, to maybe put our foot on the gas pedal in terms of acquisition. You know, we were, we were so worried about margins and valuation um, when we were a private company. Right. And now I feel like, like we still care about those things. Right. But uh, we're, we're bigger and, and we have more infrastructure to, handle acquisitions, to invest in new products. And I think the two areas you mentioned are definitely, uh, you know, on the roadmap and not in the long term. Yeah. Having cash or whether, what's the popular word now? Having dry powder, right? I think that's what the VCs <laughs> are saying. Like that's really, really useful to the growth of a company. And I'm still learning. Like our company has about 10 people and I've been, and you know, we've been up and down and we're, we're on the like, we had our first two years where it was like really, really difficult. Our third year, we figured out like who we are and what we're doing and who buys and why and, uh, you know, redefining all of our, our processes. But all of this experience of like running a business from an operational level, like you said, like caring about margins and cash flow. And just because you hit your sales goals doesn't mean you have enough cash that month. You know, it's just given me an entire insight like a whole new perspective because my previous like 10, 15 years was just building apps and selling them. So I'd get like a contract and fulfill it. And so I didn't, I said I owned my own business, which I did. Right. But it was, you know, a different thing than operating a B2B sales organization business. Very different. Yeah. Um, I kind of learned myself that there's a big difference between like doing things and like running things, you know, or managing people. And uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the same and kind of different, but I've always been a data guy. I like digging into data. I like drawing conclusions. I like coming up with solutions. And when you start getting into management and managing more people, you start separating yourself from the groundwork 
right? And and it comes down to building teams, and uh, it's it's a different skill set needed. It's a it's a different type of thing, and um, I found that I kind of like managing smaller teams, you know, ten people, five people, more so than two hundred. How how is it different? Like, how would you say? Because you're typically would only have like five plus like five to seven like direct reports so is it is it like the conversations that you have that you get to have with those with your direct team at at 10 plus people that are better than at 200 what's the differences um so you know i I mean i think everyone's different obviously but for me like uh the difference to me with a small team is that i'm 100 percent invested and interacting with 100 percent of my team you know, everyone in my org has one-on-ones with me and like knows that I'm looking at their projects and that I'm helping them. And we have this really good, good um, culture. And, and now all of a sudden when I'm managing a 200 person team, I don't have the ability to get to know all 200 people, right? I don't have the ability to, to be present and to like, to, to build those relationships. And, and sometimes I would try too hard. So a good example is after the Zoom Info acquisition, I knew that everyone on my team was in a good spot. You know, M&A, everyone worries about like, oh, is someone going to take my job? Am I going to get like, you know, replaced? And I knew everyone on the, on the team was in a good spot, but not everyone knew that, you know, like I, they didn't, everyone just kind of looks over their shoulder all the time. Right. And so there was a lot of friction there because I didn't communicate as well as I should have at the time. And so I try to overcorrect and I scheduled one-on-ones for all 27 people on that data team over like the course of a month. And I learned an amazing amount of things. You know, people will tell you things in a one-on-one that they'd never just volunteer to you. You know, like if like someone told me they don't have anything to do in the day, like I'm not really working on anything during the day. And I'm like, we are so busy. How can you not have anything to do? And he didn't tell me that until we were getting coffee down the street, you know, and he never would have just knocked on my door and said, Hey, Derek, I haven't done anything in three days, you know? And, and that's great to like want to be a part of what everyone's doing, but that's not how you scale an organization, right? And so uh, I think the difference is you have to empower and trust your direct reports. And, and I, I'm kind of like a hands-on guy and I held on to too much and, and I didn't really, I guess, deed enough over to my direct reports. Boom, dude, that's like one of the most common stories I hear. Yeah. And I, to be honest, I, uh, I was listening to your podcast on my way to Montana. Cause I was like, Oh, I'm going to be on the podcast. I should find out, you know, what Joel talks about. And like, as I was listening to it, I was like, you know, I wish I had listened to this podcast a year and a half ago because it could have helped me go through that process. You know, I think, uh, you know, I listened to uh, Roy from Calendly and, oh, he's uh, great. Yeah. you know, and then, uh, the trade desk CTO, um, you know, that was a good one. And I just started realizing it's like there was an example on one of your previous episodes where some guy went to NASA and he was told, you're only going to be evaluated on how strong your direct reports are or something like that, you know? And that's the thing I didn't do when I managed 200 people. You know, I did not, I did not view it as my job to actually build a bunch of VPs that can go do what I do. And that's what I 100% should have been doing you know, build people who can do all the stuff I'm doing for me can take it over. So I can kind of just like oversee it. But I was just I was trying to do too much. And it doesn't scale. And so 
um, that's my tip to people trying to grow into larger roles. You know, I went from managing four people at Major League Baseball to 200 at Suminfo in four months. And that's a big switch. And, uh, and so anyone who's taking on a bigger team, like find the VPs, find the people you can trust. If you don't have good VPs, develop the directors into VP level so that you can, can just get out of some stuff. Because if you don't have people under you, you can trust to do a core part of your job, your, your organization's responsibility, then you're already, you're going to lose. You know what I mean? Like, so, so you just have to get that level hammered up. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Was, what I'm thinking of right now is when I was engineering leader, I understood what it felt like to have someone I trust. Like you can give something to them. They're always on time. They're always ahead of schedule. They always like everything just works. It's always, yep. And good news and a good attitude. And it's like, you know, I spent a lot of time building a, a really solid engineering team that I did many projects with for several years. But for some reason, like it didn't click for me to do that, like with the sales part of the organization, when I started a real company, like it, it's, it's like, you know, this lesson, but sometimes they don't transfer over and there's no one that's like going to walk up and like tap you on the shoulder and help you out. So I, I found that the best way to deal with these things is just by listening to people that are smarter than you, you know, asking questions, doing some learning, but then also making sure that you take like actual action because that's when you get the experience and it solidifies and you have a story to tell and you remember it for a long time. Yeah. You know, I know there's a common engineering saying like a, a, a tremendous developer is worth like 10 mediocre developers, you know, in terms of their output, I would say for like for VP or, or director level management, it's like, you know, someone you can just give stuff to and forget about it. I mean, the, the mind space that that opens up for for a senior executive is just it's 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 so it's so coveted you know when you're developing them or when you're talking about the concept of developing them like in in my experience you know i see like i'll find the right person that has the potential that you you can you can after you have success with one or two people you can kind of find that type of person right it's like i'm mm -hmm. looking for these traits i'm looking for these principles but but a lot of people talk and it, I think it's a little ambiguous about like developing. They're like, oh yeah, we're you know developing VPs or developing these people. And I'm always curious to like dig under the surface of that. And it's like, what are the actual like tactical things that you do to develop your VPs? Yeah. So at Zoom Info, we've, we've really invested a lot in like courses, you know, so leadership development there. I think like, you know, once a week for eight weeks, you come and you learn about you know, prioritization, having tough conversations. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the stuff that, I mean, you could speak a lot better to than, than I could, but the, the way I do it is like, you kind of know what someone's missing, right? You know why this person's good. They have these skills. Um, there's someone on my team who's like the smartest guy, knows our industry inside and out, easy to work with, but didn't always speak up, didn't always assert himself in conversations, right? And, and never really had to have tough conversations. So for him, you know, I view it as kind of rounding someone out, right? You, that they do this stuff good, they need to build up these muscles to be the, the total package, right? And so, so you just kind of, I, I'm a big fan of just example-based learning, you know, and, and it's like, hey, in that meeting, I could see you wanted to say something you didn't. Like, you have to, step, you have to speak up every time in that situation. Or like, hey, 
like, I noticed this person's doing this. This is probably a good time to have a tough conversation with them about, you know, coming into work on time or, you know, making sure they work a full day or, or, you know, not being on their phone at their desk, right? Even those little things kind of like, you know, building those, I, I really see them as muscles, right? And, you know, with muscles, the more you build them, the bigger they get and the easier they are to use. So I, I, I try to find the weaknesses in someone. And, and admittedly, I wasn't that good at this, right? So maybe I'm not the best person, but that that's how it's worked for me in the past is, is, you know, identifying the person and then finding those, those areas where you can make them better. No, I think it's wonderfully said, right? Because it's not going to be the same for everybody. It's, it's in like, you know, pushing people through a program. That's like one aspect of it, right? That's like, here's some foundational knowledge. So that you, you at least know this information in the universe exists and you can go dive in deeper later if you need. But then that idea of like, and it goes back to you getting to know your team really well. You know, the more time you have to spend with your team, the better you understand them as people. And then the more qualified you become to like coach them through getting out of their comfort zone. And it's not like you have a, a checklist of, of, of a perfect employee. You just, the only way to really do it is to like get to know them and then grow them, yeah. push, push them out of their comfort zone. And I, I think you said something important there. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect employee. I think also giving your direct reports responsibilities that mesh with what they're capable of, you know? I mean, so if you have a great leader who understands data and everything, but they don't have that presence, you know, that public speaking skill, like maybe don't have them run the all hands in front of people, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so like just putting people in a position to succeed and, you know, maybe carving out little things that aren't, aren't suited for them and giving them to someone else, you know, I, I think, the work that you give someone, you, you, you can give people jobs that they're destined to fail at. And, and if you give someone a job that they're unlikely to be successful at, that's your fault. That's, you know, it's probably more your fault than their fault. Right. Um, in, in assigning the work. Yeah, I know. It's back to your, you know, muscle reference. There's challenging and then there's like injury, right there. You don't want to handle that much weight right? If you see them and they're yeah. 110 pounds soaking wet, you're not going to hand them like a 50 pound dumbbell, right? They're just, it's, they're not going to have success. They're going to get hurt with it, but you have to kind of figure out where they're at and then give them weight. That's like, you know, not too easy, but is also challenging so that they grow a little bit. Yeah. And professional psyches can be fragile. You know, that, that one comment from the CEO in a meeting, I mean, that can like bring someone down for a month, you know, like an entry level employee, you know? And so, um, I, I do think they're it's inexperienced important. though. Right. Like I think I, I am very mentally tough. <laughs> yeah. And so it's hard when people who aren't mentally tough, like meet me because they think I'm some weaker people don't like the truth. <laughs> they, they don't like it. I know there's a, there's a, there's a phrase, um, like one, one of my, I, one of my flaws is that when I think something isn't a good idea, the feedback that I give is a little too transparent. You know, it, it just kind of like, I cut to the, I'm, I'm truthful. I, I give you my opinion. Um, and, you know, that's good in some ways, you know, cause I'm not like, I'm not hiding the ball. I'm not like dancing around the issue, but it just comes off wrong. And, uh, and, and one of our, one of our executives says, I don't suffer fools gladly. I guess that's a phrase, you know, but yeah, I think, I think people who do give direct feedback and are very upfront and candid, that is overwhelming for some people, you know, to get yeah. feedback that way. 
I think about it like I'll like I'm a computer. It's like, all right, let me, here's the response, but now let me wrap it in like a nicer human layer <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I learned something from one of our executive coaches that I'll pass on that I, it's called um, LCR. It's like concern recommendation. So anytime someone tells you something that you don't think is a good idea, start by finding something in their proposal that you like, you know? So maybe you're like, Hey, I think we should put purple bushes, you know, in front of our house. And then you go, Oh, I think you're right. That's a good idea. We should put bushes in front of our house. One of my concerns is that the purple won't look good with our house pink house color. You know, I recommend using a lilac or a blue. And all of a sudden, you've turned what I would probably say is like that's stupid. Purple would be ugly. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 you give them feedback, and and like they kind of feel like you're on their team. Like they like, ooh, they like the bush idea. You know, they're they're with you and they're they're tweaking their idea. But my mind, I'm probably more similar to you. It's like, no, that's not a good idea. I I just say that. And and so ever since I heard LCR, like concern. Oh no, it's LCS, like concern suggest. Um, ever since I got that, it's really been working. Yeah, I. I had some self-reflection time when after like the third time I was called flippant <laughs> and I was like by these older people and they didn't know each other. And it was like just this time in my life where people were like, you're being flippant. And I'm like, so I Googled the word and I was like, yeah, I respond quickly. And so, you know, I've, I've learned one of my favorite ones uh, from a Navy SEAL called halt. Uh, so if you're hungry, angry, lazy, or tired, like don't make decisions. Oh. Like, like don't make don't make decisions if you're hungry, angry, lazy, or tired. So you make your worst decisions when you're in those states. And so that's one that like I heard once and for some reason I just can't get it out of my head because it's just so true. Like I notice myself whenever I'm like, well, oh, I'm I'm trying to make this like big change right now because I'm, you know, unhappy or whatever it may be, or I need I need something different. And I'm I'm always like, wait, I'm just like tired. I'm exhausted. I need to go sleep and then consider this in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I should extend that to not just making decisions, but like don't react. Because yeah. like, you know, someone messaged me something on Slack that upsets me and it's happened a lot lately. And I like, I get this mini rage and it's because I'm number one, like I'm basically, I was here when this company was started. Like this company's in my blood. You know, I, I, I'm so passionate about it. It's, it really is my life right now, it, this company. And so I care about, you know, the location of a button in the platform like it's the most <laughs> important thing in the world and i care about that button location at least 15 times more than anyone else in the company and so when, when i don't like where it's going like the, the, the passion in me just gets so strong and sometimes i like answer in a way that is just too flippant or too too um aggressive and you know toning down that intensity and you know in the end it's just the button Right. And, and I don't always know the best place to put the button. My opinion is just one of many and, and trying to, to scale that down to a place where my feedback can be constructive and not um, overwhelming or scary at times uh, is something I'm really working on and I'm getting a little better at it, but I, I certainly have more room for growth. Yeah. Delaying responses is by far like one of the most useful professional skills I've ever come across. Like just uh, that extra 24 hours in that email, just coming back and look at it when you're in a different state, like 
whenever I'm like, you know, you know, you do that like motion with your body, like, Oh, I'm going to respond to this, yeah. <laughs> this person. And I, so I'm like, I catch it early and I'm just like, no, no, no. I'm just going to, just going to go walk away and come back later when I'm clear. I think we just came up with a feature for like, you know, Lenovo or Apple. If, if the intensity of the key presses is too, <laughs> is too heavy, the, um, it'll like pop up. Like you seem angry. Are you sure you want to send this email? Um, I would pay money for that right now. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, uh, <laughs> or they're looking at your camera too. They could, I'm sure they're already doing that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, this is great. I really want to respect your, um, your time here, your hard stop time. Was there anything else that you wanted to get out? Um, or that we, first of all, there's 20 things that we didn't cover. So you have to come on like in a six months or 12 months and we have to, con- we'll do like a two hour podcast. Cause I really like you. And I think we'd have a really good, like long conversation, but mm-hmm. is there anything else that, that we didn't get out there in this episode? You know, we're just, I mean, uh, zoom info is a great place to work. Um, we've got offices in Boston, in Tel Aviv, in Grand Rapids, Vancouver, Washington, uh, Bethesda, you know, Atlanta now. Uh, and so we need really talented engineers, smart people in technology. We have lots of jobs open. I'm hiring a data scientist in Portland. So, you know, if anyone's looking for a really good environment to do some really cool stuff, real-time streaming, big data, whatever it is, we're doing just about everything, you know, and we need talented people. So anyone out there who's, who's looking for a change, uh, we're glad to bring you on. And where, where do I send them? Do I send them to your LinkedIn? Do I send them um, to Zoom Info's career you know, anyone page? Can, yeah, anyone can message me directly on LinkedIn and I'm happy to pass them to the right people, to our recruitment team. But um, I think it's careers.zoominfo.com. But let me just... Let me we'll just, check it out. Like we'll take yeah. a look at it and we'll put it in the show notes too. That's perfect. Yeah, if Zoom Info Careers, just Google that, you'll find it. Yeah. Dude, this is awesome. You have a good time. We made a podcast. You have, how do you feel? I feel great. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, so... Whenever, whenever you uh, want to talk more, just let me know. Dude, absolutely. You have a fantastic day, my friend. Okay. Thanks, Joel. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.